Hey everybody, thanks for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Network's Out Front with AJ and Nick. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Gmail, Network at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook on our page there, Chicago Podcast Network. And most importantly, you can support the show by downloading and subscribing to this podcast and all Chicago Podcast Network podcasts through iTunes, Android, and any other device that you use. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, everybody. And here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Out Front on the Chicago Podcast Network. I am Nick Sorrentos, joined over the interwebs and on Skype by my good buddy, AJ Signeri. AJ, say hi to the people. Bonjour, people. Ah, see, he brought out the French. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, folks, on today's show. For those of you who are uh, fans of the network, we had a show with myself and Andy Zemidis on Saturday uh, that uh, came up. And if you listen to this years later, uh, it was show before this on the feed we got into what had happened on friday uh discussed it kind of just gave our natural reactions within 24 hours of what had happened a couple days have passed since those attacks uh aj's recorded a show on his firebrand that we'll be posting uh probably tomorrow but i wanted to get a chance to talk to aj since he and i are the anchors of this whole thing and just kind of talk about what's going on what had happened uh, and if you're listening to this a little bit later on in life, let's just let you know what had happened. Uh, on Friday, uh, November 14th, I'm sorry, November 13th, on Friday the 13th, there was a series of terrorist attacks in Paris, France, uh, taking place almost simultaneously, and there was apparently a lot of planning involved to make that happen. And as of yesterday, when we did the, sh- the previous show, we were reporting 153, according to CNN, it died. Uh, now that number has gone to uh, back down to 127. I think it was the last official count of what's going on. And all in all, just a, a terrible tragedy uh, in the city of lights. And it's, it's heartbreaking and has kind of changed a lot of geopolitical stuff that's going on in the world. And as much as we're the Chicago Podcast Network, we would be remiss if we didn't get into this issue. So, AJ, uh, when I did the show Saturday, I started off with kind of saying this, that I'm angry that this is the world that we live in. And it breaks my heart that this is the kind of stuff that we're kind of covering more often than we should. And we got into the refugee crisis, which I'm sure you and I will do as well. But just on Friday when all of this was going on, what was your... Did you know about it right away? Did you get like the scope of it later? Uh, where were you with this story? I was actually just um, watching something on TV, and then I tried to change it over to all the news networks to see what the uh, new trend that's on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, what have you. And first thing I turned to was MSNBC, and they say, breaking news, Paris now if you watch MSNBC, it seems like every five, ten minutes, there's always breaking news, breaking news. So I figure it's like one of those deals. It's like, oh, okay. All right. Got it. And they kept talking. And they kept talking. And they kept talking. It's like, oh, so this is like the real deal. Okay. Um, 
So, I mean, watching it, for me, it's like, I mean, I've been there to Paris twice, um, 2000, 2011. And um, so a little piece of Paris in my own heart was like saddened a little bit because um, one of the places, one of the restaurants, um, Carleon, I believe, is one I was near when I was in 2011. So um, I was a little sad and, you know, kind of like, I'm like, okay, I mean, this is reality a little bit. But uh, like I said, on, on Firebrand, um, I was shocked, but I wasn't really shocked because, I mean, I don't know, what, when I got into in my show was a little bit more of the context of how this happened and everything and was I surprised it was France kind of but I wasn't naive in the fact that between France and other nations in Europe have done a lot of harm in the Middle East and for that to happen in Paris while tragic as it is um, I still wasn't naive the fact that it was going to happen at some point um with the way that this story broke, I got to tell you that I actually, uh, and, and I've been using this phrase in my American arrogance, saw the headlines, the way they were being presented. Mm. I, I honestly kind of came to the conclusion initially that it was just another shooting, uh, that this was just a, a one-time attack. And as, as horrible as this may sound, I've become so desensitized to mass shootings or even terrorist attacks that one attack as wrong as this may be doesn't shock me anymore does that make sense to you no it does and because we heard all the time nowadays it seems in the united states like this shooting happened that shooting happened um this terrorist act has happened in europe this place has happened in africa wherever so it's just like because the way mass media is and again, like you mentioned, the, the breaking news banner is so overused mm -hmm. that you don't know exactly what it is. I, mean, I remember when that plane, uh, Malaysian flight, was it 357 or whatever it was, yeah. that went missing. You know, there was breaking news every day about it that tantamounted to, we found a piece of plastic in the ocean. You know, and, it, and at some point you just kind of get, I don't know less about like less caring about it i heard it first on a sports radio station they were talking about the attack at the stadium which was the first attack and then i kind of put it out of my mind and went home worked on some other stuff and it wasn't for like three to four hours after everything had happened uh at like seven thirty, eight o'clock at night that i got the idea of just the breadth and width of this attack that it was happening in multiple locations on the same day with people who apparently had ties to each other, which is the scariest aspect of this attack, I think, more than anything else, right? Wouldn't you agree? No, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, terrorist acts, no matter whether or who was it by, it's still like a tragic thing because that's always going to be the human side of it, you know, as much as you may have a different political difference or you have a different perspective of what's going on the, the human factor is when you hear something of this happening we are still going to be empathetic to those who have been injured or killed you know and 
And I got to be honest, I thought, what was it? What they say now? 104 to almost 150. It's uh, The official number as of right now is 127. So that to me seemed like like a low number, you know, because you're kind of when you're talking about an event like that, you kind of think it's going to be more two, three, four hundreds, you know, for. So when I saw them, like there's something there's got to be more than this 120, you know, but when you look at the scope of whether it happened, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. But you would also think that, hey, why didn't they just go in bigger numbers? Well, there's that. There's also the, I mean, let's face it, the, and it sounds bad to say this because the bombs did go off and people were killed, but the, I would say the attacks at the football stadiums were failures, at least for what they were attempting to achieve. Uh, you know, the, the shootings at the restaurant, and, and I'm not trying to, like, justify, like, oh, they had low numbers. It's just the idea that at the end of the day, you're, you're looking at a group of people who carried out these attacks and generally speaking, you know, they, they, the, the, the part that's see, the part that I was trying to get at that was that was even scarier is the idea of the um, just the ability for them to communicate and have this kind of all planned out to happen at the same time. The synchronicity of it, mm-hmm. you know, of, of different teams doing different acts or maybe it was all one team. We don't know the details yet, but. It makes me afraid going forward. I've, I've actually, and, I, and people react to this, but I've always been of the opinion that uh, when George Bush sat there, and, and, and as much as we, uh, especially those like yourself and I who consider ourselves more liberal than conservative, uh, badmouth everything that he did in his presidency, and there was a lot that he did wrong, I do agree with what he said early on, which is you're going to go to work tomorrow, you're going to go and live your life, because if you don't do that, that is them winning. And I agree with that. I would argue that heightened security in the United States is also them winning, but we can have that conversation another time. The fact of the matter is, this is the first time, even including the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, which wasn't terrorism, that was just a maniac, that I'm actually afraid going forward, because... I'd be lying. We have that event on December 17th at the movie theater. And while we're at a very small independent theater, and I'm not that worried about anything happening to us, if you look, they have people working with ISIS now who are from the United States, who are from Canada, who are from Europe. And if you wanted to give a lesson to terrorists on how do you strike fear into the hearts of the United States, attack during the Star Wars movie at multiple locations. You know what I'm saying, AJ? Yeah, yeah. I mean, something that is just so tantamount to being innocent that you, and you know the world is watching that event anyway, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that, that scares me. And the fact that they were able to pull this off in, again, multiple locations spread out over five miles in one of the most historic, important cities in the world, it, it, it gets into this idea of fear and them legitimately terrorizing people. But you also have to look at it of what other groups have done in the past. I mean, if you look at what Castro and Guevara did in Cuba, what the Weather Underground did in the United States, what other groups have done in the name of, you know, call it terrorism, call it whatever you want to call it. If you look at how they did it and and, and as technology has progressed over the years you know you start seeing a lot of fundamental things that are common denominators one you know communications key to um an actual 
well-executed plan needs to be carried out. And three, you know, don't do it in consecutive days or consecutive weeks or whatever. You know, you have to do it sporadically in order for make your said opponent, if it were, to, you know, be fearful. So if you look at all these examples we've we've seen, I would argue since the 40s moving forward, different organizations doing terrorist acts. And if you learn from them and how that applies to ISIS or ISIL, Daesh, whatever you want to call them, then you can still see the fundamental ground game that is always going to be throughout any organization doing acts of violence. But this specific terrorist time that we're living in, the the, the era of the Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS, mm-hmm. and even going back, you know, to other forms of it in the 90s, if you want to go back, you know, to Hezbollah, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Israel, the difference to me between terrorism and revolutionaries Revolutionaries, you know, you, you, you pointed to Che, you pointed to, to Castro. They still had the, as, as weird as this sounds, the respect of war to, you don't attack children. You don't attack innocent right. civilians. You go after legitimate targets. Uh, the Nazis in World War Two, the Holocaust was happening, but militarily, they, they, they also didn't just go into French villages and murder everybody. Now, they had, I'm not, this isn't like a... You know that they did such great things. It's just the, right. it's just. But I'm saying like the even even the most historically evil organization of all time was systematic in what they were doing and still did not declare war. There's a when I talked to Andy on Saturday, he mentioned a piece you may be familiar with. Um, I want to make sure I get the name correct, but it's it, it was about how the current uh, battles that we are fighting are not battles of of politics they're not like how we were in the cold war this has uh, more to do with a battle of civilizations that if you if you look at it the western civilization that we are are just so so i mean if yeah you, if I, you, I'm, you, if I'm, go ahead. You, I'm sorry so i'm just there, there's a classic international relations text called the class of civilization that's the one i'm yeah samuel samuel huntington thank you that's the name i was looking for and so and i've said this on, on on firebrand so class of civilizations is a classic text i encourage people to read it it's available for free it is and so when huntington and his that's not even his real name really um he's a harvard professor and he was on point of his time, and I want to emphasize that, of his time. And he outlines, you know, there's a Western civilization, Islamic civilization, African, India, Confucian. China, Japan, so forth and so forth. But what he doesn't go to say in that text, if you, when you read it, he doesn't talk about the internal conflict within those civilizations. So when you're talking about... That class of civilizations between Russia, the Western world, and Islam, which all is right there in the vortex of Europe. What he doesn't go as far as say, like, so you have a Sunni branch and a Shia branch in the Middle East. 
he doesn't go as far in using the historical context of when you have all these other groups of the, the rise of the Islamic golden age past the Iron Age and everything, where you're actually having Islamic philosophers and religious, religious clerics who are now creating ultra-conservative ideologies like Habia, which is what ISIS is. They're an ultra-conservative organization that came out of the Taliban, which Muslim Brotherhood uses, which Hezbollah uses. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of ultra-conservative organizations that use this um, 8th century ideology. When you think about that, though, they're using 8th century ideology. To me, that tells me that they are so fundamentally stuck in that way of thinking that I... You and I have talked many times about the idea of the respect for human life. That that is, as many disagreements as you and I have had, Mm. it was one of the unifying factors, I would say, of our friendship, is that you and I both believe very strongly that, you know, all human life is precious. Even your worst enemy's life matters. Oh, yeah. And in this scenario, I am struggling, AJ, with that thought process. Because if... It is true that they are living out an 8th century ideology and they are fundamentally dedicated to the destruction of Western civilization as they see it. Am I allowed to? I mean, it's nice in practice, right, to be Captain Picard and say that we will enforce our ideals come hell or high water. But at the end of the day, I also really don't want to die. And I feel afraid a little bit that we are going to lose that respect for human life in as these if these attacks continue this way because eventually the only legitimate practical option is to go total war on these guys and if we do that if we just decide that we are going to a fundamental ideological ideological war i don't know if that war ever ends and it won't you know because you know we've talked about on the show about Boko Haram, which again, Boko Haram uses that same ultra-conservative religious ideology. Um, when you're in an ideological war, you're doing nothing more than kicking the hornet's nest. I think the best... Well, and you're also fighting for total destruction. There is no middle ground in an ideological war. You're right. There's no peace summit. There's no, you know, you're not going to have a meeting in Paris, ironically, to sign peace treaties later. This isn't right. the Cold War with the Russians. If you go into an ideological war, that is for all the marbles. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, 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 and that's on point because I guess you know. I guess the best illustration, and I talked about this on Firebrand, is this. As weird as this may sound, so are you familiar with the Hawaiian goose? I am not. So Hawaii has its own little breed of goose called the Hawaiian goose. It's, it's very different. It was on the brink of extinction at one point. Because Hawaii at one time had a very large snake population. And snakes also like to eat eggs, particularly these goose eggs. Someone got the bright idea of saying, hey, let's go to India in the Southeast Asia because there's mongoose and the mongoose eat snakes. They went over, got a whole bunch of mongoose, put them in Hawaii. And it, it kind of curved the snake population, but what they didn't factor in that mongooses also eat bird eggs. 
So, so they solved a problem, but they also added a problem onto it. My point is this. You can't go into said Middle East and saying, okay, I'm actually going to stop this organization by adding another problem to it, whether it's, oh, we're going to fund this rebel group. We're going to do this. Oh, we're going to align ourselves with this group. Because if you keep doing that, then it's really going to backfire our backfire on you at the end. And I hate using this example, but this is going back to the Russo-Afghan war when we actually funded Al-Qaeda. Who were the Mujahideen at the time. Right. We funded them because, hey, these rebels need to fight against Russia, so we're going to support the Afghans. And then what happens years later? We're actually manhunting someone who was part of that group. Well, not only that, but if you look at historically, if you want to look at that one in particular, not only did we arm them, uh, we made a lot of promises about what we would do following the conflict, right? right. That we right. never lived up to. Exactly. And as a result of that, you know, the, the, the support that we had in that region turns to resentment, turns to anger, turns to outright hatred because it's like, well, we blew up most of our country the, under the idea that the United States was going to come in here and build infrastructure for us and, and help us, and you didn't do it because you got hit with a recession in the late 80s and never came back and fixed it, and eventually you've got people living in an area. It's If you... Have you seen the PBS documentary that they did on Frontline, The Rise of ISIS? No. It's phenomenal. I recommend that you see it, and anybody listening, if you're curious about these issues. And they really do get into the idea of how the mistakes early on in the second Gulf War or you know Operation Iraqi Freedom, which I hate using, but mm-hmm. any of those phrases that you want to use to describe what happened when George Bush II sent in troops to Iraq – that without the plan of what happened after the war is, and by essentially backing a um, Shia government, the the Sunnis felt that they were being put out. The Ba'athists were basically kicked out of the government as a result of the first ambassador to Iraq, and who was the front, the front man on the war. And as a result of that, you essentially ended the Iraqi military, putting 20 to 30-year-old men out on the streets with their weapons and nothing to do. Right. In, in a country that was clearly being blown to bits, and, and, and out of that grows this anger and this resentment. And then, you know, it's that idea of, I will go to whatever group will have me. Uh, Andy and I talked about this on Saturday, that there's a lot of correlations, and it's not new. And this isn't a new idea or anything, but if you want to look at what causes a street gang to form in somewhere like the south side of Chicago and what causes a terrorist organization to be able to recruit as much as it can, they're very same. You give people no feeling of hope, no ability to look for anything else, and they will go to wherever gives them value for themselves to give them some sort of self-esteem. And as a result of that, you're getting, you know, people who, you know, 10 years ago probably weren't even radicalized who are now part of ISIS. Right. And the, 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 the other thing that comes out of this, and, and I wanted to get into this with you, and I know we were on an abbreviated time today. I wanted to talk to you about your fears and concerns, and we can get into Bruce Rauner doing this as well, but of the the story of the European countries that are sealing their borders to these refugees that need places to go. 
Yeah, that'll, that, that about sums it up. Well, where do I begin? Um, it's really sad when we have so much distrust on humanity that we have to question the very thing that us human beings have to do. There are refugees who want to leave an area because they feel they can no longer live there because they want to move their families out. They want to change their lives. And so they do it in masses. And by saying no, my state, my country um, is not going to have these refugees come in, um, I think that speaks more to their own morality than them politically. Because, sure, I mean, out of, let's just say 10,000, out of 10,000, you may get what? 10 who may be part of ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, whatever you want to call them. Um, you might, you know, but that is still a smaller number than the people that you're rescuing and everything. Sure, you may have to go through some sort of background check. Sure, you may have to do the necessary things in order to protect your country and your respective state as a governor or mayor and what have you. But to say, no, we're going to stop doing this because this is where I feel, I think you're doing more a disservice in your role as an elected official because as an elected official, you should be the one saying, okay, we're here to help, but we're still going to do a comb over. There's also the question in that kind of scenario that we're talking about where countries and states here in the United States are saying no, 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 to not, again, you and I have talked about many times the short-sightedness of conservative parties, where they're not seeing that by Almost the exact same thing we talked about with Afghanistan and with Iraq. You are taking a group of people and you are going to force them into a desert of hopelessness, you know, where they have no recourse. They have literally nowhere to go except to stay on this little, these little islands in Greece. Well, you keep them there long enough and eventually they're going to get, they're going to begin to perceive you not as their eventual saviors, but as their, you know, jailers. Right. And, and, and stopping them from doing stuff. And, and if you are not uh, a, a member of ISIS or ISIL, but you're being treated like you are, eventually you're just going to, you know, out of necessity, have to violently stand up and say, this is wrong. And at some point you can't blame, a, you can't blame an individual who's stuck in that scenario for becoming that when they have no other, you know, foreseeable choice. I mean, look at the concentration. I'll just say that they were concentration camps that we had in the United States. Right. Between Japan and Italians, mind you. Not to mention the, the, the reaction towards German citizens in World War One. Right. You know, um, and, and that's another, another good point. So you had, they call them internment camps, but they're really concentration camps that FDR put in place. Um, you had Manzanarch in California and elsewhere. Where George um, uh, Takei was raised. I don't know if you know that. Yes. I, I, I actually heard about that about a year ago. Yeah, George Takei, the guy who played Mr. Sulu on Star Trek, was raised in Manzanar internment camp, for those of you out there who know, don't know that. And then in like Clinton, Iowa, you know, not far from where I live, had an Italian internment camp. Um, but even more powerful, you had what? 
Anheuser-Busch, Homs, Schlitz, Paps, all those German beer companies, and everyone stopped drinking them because they have they had to have been sympathizers to Hitler's Germany. Well, a lot of people say that part of the temperance movement of the early 1920s, the what that got alcohol to be made illegal, that led to the rise of Al Capone uh, and the speakeasy here in Chicago, is a result of prejudice against Germans, that they were able to basically say that beer is a product of the Kaiser, and as a result of that, we need to not have people drinking in the United States, and that's the outgrowth of, of those kinds of things. Right. So, I mean, my point is this, you know, is between – this is not a new thing with the Syrian refugees. We've seen this with the Jewish immigrants. We've seen this with Italian, Irish immigrants. We've seen this with other African immigrants. We're seeing this with Cuban people who well, they, want to leave a country. Well, not, I mean think of the – and for those of you who don't know your history, just think of the – but I'm assuming most people have seen Scarface, the opening yeah. scenes of Scarface where they had those camps underneath the Florida highways. Exactly. You know, and that that was a real thing. Sometimes people don't understand that, but that really happened here in the United States. We still had people in camps like that. And the fact that we allow that to happen in the, you know, and I love to use the phrase the greatest country in the world. Well, you you have these these Christian conservatives and this is happening in Europe as well where they talk about well we need to protect our way of life. Well, what is our way of life? Is our way of life the kind that tells people who need help, well, you know what, some people who you know, who, who you don't even know, but some people who look like you are doing bad things, so we can't have you here. That's Is that our way of life that, we, that you're standing to protect? Because I'm not, that's not something I believe. There is a risk in helping people, but you need to help these people. And these these. I mean, AJ, you've seen the footage, you've seen the videos, the pictures of this, the, the poor, that one that went global, the, the little boy washed up on the beach. Yeah, you know th- this stuff is happening on a daily basis in a, in in relatively you know civilized places in the world, and we still don't know what happens going forward with these people to the point where I I, I just feel like we're going to end up with this refugee crisis if we leave those people there. You're going to end up with an army of of angry people who may not be ISIS, but they're damn sure not going to be your friend either. Plus thing, I mean, yeah, they're not going to be ISIS. It's going to be a whole different other ball game. And then you, what? You're going to lump them as, oh, they must be part of ISIS. You know? Because um, I think if, if it's one thing that we do well is we like to compartmentalize things. You know, we like to make general statements and blanket things. It's like, well, they must be part of this group. They must be part of this. And it's like, no, it's really segments of something else. You're calling it this, but it's really something else. The uh, I know you got to get going, and I figured we'd do a short one today because there's not, unfortunately, the information that we have, there's not a lot for us to discuss yet. Uh, we're still in the early processes of this, and I just want to uh, get into this a little bit before you go. The idea that France has now kicked up their airstrikes. They are uh, using United States uh, intelligence to hit certain targets. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about NATO uh, coming together to fight ISIS as a threat. Uh, the France is asking the United States and Russia to put aside their BS and team up to do this. Do you feel... And, 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 I, and I 
you and I have spoken many times. I've spoken with a lot of other people about this. I've done this on other shows. You know, we, we, we talk about movies a lot and the power of fiction as far as to look forward to the future. Mm-hmm. And I think in scenarios like this, I like to think of the movie Watchmen. And at the end of that movie, the, the, the villain essentially says, I have saved the world by giving them a common enemy to fight. Right. Do you feel that this is a possibility with what's going on? Because I don't. I don't think that there's a silver lining to any of this. But I, I feel that question needs to be asked. Could this be a unifying moment for the United States and Russia? Or does this just, do we see a rise in global cooperation? Or do we end up with just another like example of, of somebody working together and then it just falls apart again. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I'm trying to find something hopeful out of a pretty bad situation. Unfortunately, I feel that it's more of people with egos trying to come up, work together. And then at the end of the day, they're still going to have their own agenda. You know, I mean, we can say all day that, you know, we're siding with, Holland and Cameron in the UK and Putin in Russia, Merkel in Germany, and we're going to do everything possible to um, rid this evil. But at the end of the day, they're still going to be their own leader in their own country and says, well, that's taken care of now. You need to help me. says Putin, that you need to help me to unify Russia. Not a communist Russia, but my own Russia, you know? And Merkel's like, well, now you have to work with us. And Cameron's like, well, well, you need to work with us. Because they're they're all in it for their own ego. I, uh, I don't know, man. I, 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 every time we do shows like this, you and I, I feel, I feel a little sadder about the planet. I don't feel that we've I feel like even to like the, just the two of us talking, like we, we should be able to find something, some silver lining. And there, I mean, and, and I know that that sounds crazy with this many deaths, but the truth is, you know, out of situations like this in human history in the past, you know, things had been accomplished as a result of this, but we're so damn divided the world over that I, I just, I don't know. I Part of me wonders, AJ, if the end of all of this is, and I, I've said this to you before, is is just invading that area with World War II-like numbers and occupying the entire Middle East, which is impro- impractical and will never actually happen. But other than other than that extreme scenario, I see no way of this stuff ever truly stopping. And, and I don't have my own conclusions myself, really. And, and, and it's and probably it's, shocking, but I, I really just don't. This is... A really a reflective moment for me because we are entering a new phase I feel um, when it comes to international conflict and the things that we have seen in the last two years maybe three um, is really one that is walking on eggshells and you know, we can say that we want everyone supporting us and put all of our efforts into this one region. But when you have a network 
that really doesn't like Western thought, when you have other organizations don't like Western thought and other countries and organizations, it really becomes hard to meet the objective that you want to execute. Which is crazy because at the end of the day, what is the objective really that everybody wants? We want to live in a world where we're not afraid that movie theaters, concert venues, sports arenas aren't going to be attacked. Right. Which, which isn't like an unreasonable thing to ask of the world, but that's that's where we're at. We are at a point where we just want that to stop, and it's not going to until you get rid of this entire issue. At the same time, I don't want to compromise what makes us us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yep, I do. To get to that point. So it's it, it's this horrible thing. And like normally you and I have these conversations about the bigger issues. We, we kind of point to... Most of the time, let's face it, it's you and me. We come to the idea that corporations need to pay more taxes, that people need to stop having so many tax loopholes, that minimum wage needs to be like. There are answers to these problems. They're complicated, but they're not difficult to understand. In this particular instance, in the fighting of a, an ideology that just wants you dead because they believe that you are not worthy of life, I don't know what the answer is, and, and, and it makes me sad. And I'll say the same thing I said on Saturday's show, if you guys have stuck through it this long. There is the moment of hope for me, though, AJ, that I, that I have heard, and I, and I kind of want to end the show on this, is after these attacks, at every blood bank in Paris, the, uh, the lines were at least an hour long. Yeah. So that instinct to help is still there. It just needs to be fostered in everybody. It does. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here? Not really. <laughs> All right, folks, this has been an abbreviated edition of Out Front, just kind of getting some of our thoughts with everything that happened in Paris. As uh, more information becomes available, we'll address it. Uh, we'll be doing a couple other shows. And, again, be ready for December 17th. Please come out to the Pickwick Theater in Park Ridge, Illinois. Uh, you can get your tickets on movietickets.com. There is no extra charge for the event. We'll be doing the podcast outside the building, handing out a bunch of gifts and prizes. We'll have a raffle going. Uh, a lot of fun stuff going on that night. And, of course, you get to see Star Wars. So uh, come do that. And, and, honestly, at this point, I would say going to the premiere of Star Wars is almost a political statement of saying I am not afraid and I will do what I was going to do anyway. And damn you for trying to make me feel better or for make me feel bad about it. So other than that, AJ, say goodbye to the people. Bye, people. Bonjour, people. I think isn't it the same goodbye, hello and goodbye? Yeah. Okay, so bonjour, people. That was about as American a way of saying bonjour as you can ever get. Bonjourno. Uh, we will uh, talk to you guys later. This has been Nick Sorrentos and AJ Signeri on Out Front Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast One. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Chi Town Podcast. And you can email us, Chicago Podcast Network at Gmail. Uh, again, December 17th at the Pickwick Theater. Other than that, folks, it's been fun. Uh, not really. I don't know why I said that. It hasn't been, but it's been a it's been a thing. We've done a thing. We opened the microphones and said things. Other than that, folks, we'll talk to you guys uh, at a later date. We out. This has been a production of the Chicago Podcast Network theme music provided by the Free Music Archive, Morning Blue by Josh Woodward. That's Josh Woodward on the Free Music Archive. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Gmail. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.